Welcome to this week's episode of the Middle East Weekly, a podcast brought to you by the Journal of Middle Eastern Politics and Policy. This week, we are joined by Mohamed Saleh, Blair Big, Nick Norberg, Mariam Khanim, and myself, Anna Boots. We are all master's students in the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Harvard University. On this week's episode, Mohammed will update us on the ongoing siege of eastern Khouta in Syria and the dire humanitarian situation that is unfolding there. Mariam will then update us on the upcoming Egyptian presidential elections, which are scheduled for the end of this month. Mohammed, what's going on this week in Syria? So, over the last three weeks, Ghouta, uh, a, a city uh, in uh, Damascus's countryside, was uh, attacked heavily by government forces in an attempt to expel rebels from the area. Uh, Doctors Without Borders said on Thursday the offensive had killed 1,005 people and injured at least 4,829. That is about 344 wounded and 71 dead per day. Uh, The UN says, according to a report by Reuters, that 400,000 people are trapped in the towns and villages of Eastern Ulta, uh, and they have been under government siege for years since the beginning of the Syrian civil war. Um, this echoes um, what the what government forces did uh, it to rebels in Aleppo last year, with heavy bombardment and allegations of chemical weapon use. Of course, Aleppo ended with rebels uh, being given a path out of the city, and uh, Russia, which is Pre- President Bashar al-Assad's strongest and most powerful allies, attempting to recreate that. They've offered uh, rebels safe passage out with their families and personal weapons. So this past Monday, trucks with international aid were finally allowed to enter the city. I mean, this was the first time that they had received aid in over three months. And the aid trucks were there for about nine hours, but then had to leave due to heavy shelling. But even, and they left with supplies that they had meant to deliver to a lot of the residents, but were unable to. But even if they had been able to deliver everything, I think they only had enough supplies for about a quarter of the population. And I think all of this, just what, what you said, Mohammed, and then the fact that the aid trucks are having such a hard time delivering resources to people, I think just really highlights, and this isn't new, but I think the siege over the past, over the past month has just really highlighted the escalation of the humanitarian crisis in Syria. And I've read several articles and I've seen a lot of pictures comparing images of Dresden in 1945 and Huda now. And I think it's just kind of been a reminder that the UN is really failing in its obligation to provide humanitarian relief to Syria, which is you know what the UN was designed to do after World War II. And so I think that's something that is just kind of depressing and is making everyone feel a little bit hopeless in how to mm-hmm. help Syria. And they released a statement this week describing that there are sympathies for the residents of Ghouta, but not really proposing any uh, promising any action or you know proposing any solutions, which kind of, which seemed to be to reveal to everyone that they don't even see themselves as playing any kind of role in the Syrian conflict anymore, which is so surprising given what um, what as Blair mentioned what the UN was originally designed to do, and the fact that they can really offer no policy solutions or no um, promises for action is really disappointing. Nick, do you want to add a little bit more about what? of the other players in the Syrian conflict could possibly be doing. We're seeing a lot of a, a lot of media condemning the inaction from all sides. And what are some of the things that different players could be doing if they had the political will to? Um, so part of the problem, I think, is that there aren't 
actually a whole lot of options available, even if there were political will to carry them out. There's, you know, when you're trying, part of the reason that arms control is so difficult is that it's really difficult to, is that governments are aware of, particularly rogue state governments are aware of how powerful these weapons are, and they are very good at using them as a bargaining chip because they know that the international community badly wants to get them out of their hands. So if uh, if the international community really wanted to do something about chemical weapons in Syria, there's it's uh, it's not something that would be easy to convince the Assad regime to do. And if they were to convince that, they would have to give the Assad regime a lot that the rebels are not willing to give them and that I think a lot of members of the UN are not willing to give them. One of those conditions would absolutely be, I think would probably be a guarantee for Assad's continuation in as the ruler of Syria, which, you know, is something that seems pretty certain at this point, but definitely something that the rebels are not willing to concede. There, your, uh, y- you know, your other alternative at that point basically uh, is the use of military force. And even that is not really all that effective, as we've seen. President Trump, you know, ordered a tomahawk strike uh, on a chemical weapons facility in Syria last year. Uh, but the effect of that strike really wasn't to deter the Assad regime from using chemical weapons. It was really to, you know, signal to the Assad government that so long as they kept their use of chemical weapons quiet, uh, then the international community wouldn't do anything about it. And if it was too obvious, then they would be moved to action. But, you know, if it were something that were kind of, you know, restrained, it were something that were kind of, you know, dampened, then uh, it's something that they would let slide. Too much military force also, you know, risks running afoul of Russia, and uh, no one wants to see, you know, any sort of conflict between American and Russian soldiers in Syria due to the possible escalation that could follow. It's, it's also really difficult to constrain chemical weapons because even if you destroy supplies, and even if you're able to convince a government to give up their chemical weapons, there's such an extensive black market for these, for, you know, for these weapons, uh, you know, in the international community that it's very easy for them to acquire new stocks even after they've had them destroyed. Do you think that Russia's veto power on the Security Council really prevents the UN from being able to take any meaningful action or, or um, condemn Assad, or are they just using that as an out? No, I, th- I mean, I think that's definitely a pretty huge impediment. Uh, and, y- you know, without without Russian support for combating you know, chemical weapons use in Syria, it's uh, it's certainly not going to happen. Uh, Russia has a huge amount of influence both within Syria and on the Security Council. So there is a lot that they can do to prevent the UN from doing its job. And there's a lot that they can do to prevent the international community from, you know, succeeding uh, in Syria you know, even if they've nominally agreed to it. Mm-hmm. This is also uh, part of the problem with delivering humanitarian aid effectively. And there's, you know, some evidence to suggest that this is a point of contention between the Assad regime and Moscow. There's, you know, kind of some indication that uh, the Russians, you know, that when the Russians agreed to humanitarian aid convoys, you know, being sent in, oftentimes, you know, the Assad regime's troops on the ground will take actions that Russia has not agreed to. And that's something that Russia has been able, has been willing to swallow for now because of how much they value their, their relationship with the Assad regime and because of how much they value their presence in Syria. But if Assad continues to push the limits of, you know, what they'll allow him to do, it's kind of unclear, you know, at what point they might try to rein him in a little bit. Mm-hmm. And at one point they might try and exercise more tight control over him. I think what this, what all of what Nick just said highlights more than anything else are two general points. First, it's the failure of institutions that were put into place and structures that were erected in order to 
find a peaceful civil solution to problems like this. They're just not working because solutions like that, like the UN coming in and, and arbitrating some sort of peace assumes that both sides want a sort of peace and assumes that both sides are willing to compromise even if one is uh, the, uh, more blameworthy than the other. Uh, and that doesn't seem to be happening at all and there aren't alternatives, uh, which is why we're seeing these atrocities happen cyclically. Every couple of months, something else happens in Syria and who the belligerent is isn't very clear. Uh, we're talking about Ghutanao and, and the regime attacking uh, rebels. And a few weeks ago, we were talking about Turkey entering North Syria and attacking Kurds. Um, and the second is the limits of American intervention. Um, when we say, what should the U.S. do? Um, that comes with a lot of baggage because of former U.S. intervention in the region. But nobody seems to really question Turkish intervention or Russian intervention or what have you because it's taken for granted that they're going to perform whatever it is they'll do unilaterally um, and no one will blame them um, or no one will at least uh, uh, expect them not to intervene in the same way that people really don't seem to want the U.S. to intervene. So last year when um, President Trump ordered that airstrike on Syria, uh, many Syrians on both sides rejected that uh, because they didn't want any more American intervention in Syria. Um, and that's not really clear, uh, or what, what comes next isn't very clear because of the articles that have been published over the past week or two expressing um, a disenchantment uh, with, with any sort of peace process, there have been no solutions offered and no one seems to want or care about finding a solution anymore. Well, I think what's really hard too, and Nick alluded to this a little bit, is that there's just a really deep ethical conundrum, I think, in the fact that if you want to effectively provide humanitarian aid, there has to be peace. But in order for peace to happen, like basically what it ends up meaning is you have to condone Assad's actions and his continued presence and leadership of Syria um, in order to really bring an end to this war because it's likely that he's going to stay in power. A lot of these actors have to accept his terms, which is hard because then you're kind of condemning all of this brutality and everything that he's done against uh, the civilians in Syria so far. But at the same time, like that also could end up meaning a lot more lives are saved if humanitarian intervention is allowed to effectively take place. Um, I will say I, I do kind of disagree with uh, with your point, Mohammed, that there's sort of an uh, that there's sort of an exception, or sorry, a, 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 an acceptance of uh, Russian or Turkish intervention mm -hmm. in Syria, where there's uh, kind of a pushback against American intervention. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't. I, I'm not. I'm not sure what. I would. I would hate to speak. I have no way of speaking for the entirety of Syrian, you mm -hmm. know, public opinion on this. Mm -hmm. But I will say that I. I don't know if it's just that there's less of an expectation that mm. Russia and Turkey are going to play by the international rules and that there's sort of a foregone conclusion that, you know, Russia is going to act unilaterally, um, mm. you know, based on precedent set in Ukraine, based on precedent in Crimea. Um, but I, I don't know, I, I haven't really seen support for Russian action or for Turkish action in Syria. I mean, support, sure, among domestic populations, among populations at home um, and among, you know, polling done in Turkey and polling done in Russia, although in Russia... Uh, the numbers seem to be declining uh, in terms mm. of the public support for intervention in Syria. Well, I guess that really, what I meant by acceptance uh, is the side on whom, uh, the side supported by each of these belligerents, right? So for example, um, Russia and Turkey, uh, Russia and Iran have both sided with the Assad regime and the Assad, uh, Assad supporters have not vocalized 
any, any problem with that. Whereas rebels receiving American, intervent, American support uh, constantly brings up questions. Uh, is, this an is this some sort of conspiracy? Is this some sort of American back plot? Has this been the case since the beginning? Uh, these conspiracy theories, although they might sound crazy, have gained in traction immensely over the last few years. And every time a new report comes out highlighting the US's support for the rebels early on in the war, that's used as a pretext for uh, arguing against any sort of American intervention. So it just seems to me as though because of the history of American um, presence, America's presence in the Middle East, um, there is m there's more to criticize. Whereas with Turkey, Iran, um, Russia, uh, even Saudi, their their intervention uh, is very clearly part of their respective plans. Uh, is is in in many ways self serving, but I don't see the same level of criticism lobbed at them as I see it lobbed at the U.S. Um, and of course, Donald Trump or the election of Donald Trump has only exacerbated that fact. So, yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd, I mean, do you think that has anything to do with the American, uh, you know, failure to get involved earlier in Syria? Or I mean, there's the, it seems like occasionally you, you know, run into these analysis pieces that uh, kind of allege that you know the U.S. waited too long and that had the U.S. gotten involved right away when the protests began things might be different. That seems like rewriting history to me, or that seems... Yeah, the, I mean, counterfactuals like that, you know, had the U.S. done X, then maybe Y wouldn't have happened, or Z would have happened. I think they're, they're uh, largely navel-gazing. The but, fact but is do you think that But do you think that rejection of American involvement has mm -hmm. anything to do with, you know, the, the perceived waffling by the U.S., you know, in the earlier years of the conflict? I think partly, but it, had the U.S. It, entered early on, then we would have just had a completely different set of concerns, um, right? Uh, I, the, I remember, uh, if I remember correctly, the, the criticism of any U.S. intervention began uh, around the time that Russia entered in 2014. Prior to that, there was a lot of contention over whether or not the U.S. should enter, um, Barack Obama making his famous declaration regarding the chemical weapons as uh, being some sort of red line. Uh, was is highlighted consistently, but it wasn't until Russia intervened and backed Assad through everything he wanted to do that suddenly the U.S.'s intervention or lack thereof became an issue. So I don't know. Uh, I do know that Barack Obama making that his claim uh, or making that claim and then uh, not following up on anything when there was evidence of chemical attacks emboldened uh, Assad, and I think to a certain extent it definitely emboldened Putin and other belligerents. But that's all that I'm comfortable saying. Mm -hmm. I think regardless though, I, I've just seen a lot of Twitter posts or WhatsApp messages that were able to make it onto the media that have just been calling for some sort of intervention from someone because the level of civilian massacres in the humanitarian mm -hmm. situation has just gotten so out of control that people are just really desperate for some sort of help, Absolutely. no matter where it comes from. Yeah, I think a big question that, that's been asked, and a, um, a friend of mine who is Syrian, who is a Syrian refugee in the States, and left because of the war asked me, you know, what could the U.S. have done? And that's, and I told her, I really don't know. And she responded, she didn't know either. So it's very, it, 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 nobody seems to really know what the U.S. could have done. What, what the U.S. could have done that wouldn't have generated a backlash. Okay, thanks everyone. I think we'll shift now to away from Syria and to an update on the upcoming Egyptian elections.
And Maryam's going to give us an update on what the state of the meager state of the field is and what the prospects are for a democratic or not so democratic election in Egypt coming up this spring. So the um, presidential elections are set to take place March 26th to March 28th. The two candidates for the presidency are Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, who's the current president, and Musa Mustafa Musa, who is the head of Al-Ghad party. Musa was recently added to the list of candidates. He it was very suspicious the circumstances that he was added because he got thousands of signatures in a matter of hours to get his candidacy approved. And he has stated blatantly that he uh, is not posing any challenge to President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, uh, which has been the trend of this presidential election, that there isn't much of a democratic competition going on. It's um, that Mustafa Musa's addition into this election was just a way for Sisi to feign the appearance of a democratic experience. The Sisi presidency or administration has learned from the mistakes of the previous Mubarak regime who had started to kind of give a managed opening, managed political opening and allowing certain people to participate in semi-press freedom, uh, especially towards the end of their their rule, like the Mubarak regime's rule. So Abdel Fattah al-Sisi is taking a more cautionary approach and ensuring that there is no type of openness uh, within this election or generally in Egypt. He has very strict control over the media. There also appears to be a rift within the securities, um, security system in Egypt because Ahmad Shafi and Sami Anan were said to run in the elections, but they were both either arrested or um, coerced into exiting. So there definitely appears to be a lot going on in Egypt at the moment. But, at, but in terms of the elections, it's pretty much just a way for uh, Abdel Fattah Sisi to get a stamp of approval for a second term. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Middle East Weekly, a podcast brought to you by the editors of the Journal of Middle Eastern Politics and Policy. Please stay tuned for our next episode in two weeks, and in the meantime, be sure to follow the news on JMAP's website at hksjmap.com and on Facebook and Twitter. Sorry. <laughs> 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 They're just making this even worse. Ha 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 ha!